Welcome back to the podcast. In our last episode, we covered the history of the Huron Confederacy, or the Wendat Confederacy, right up until their destruction at the hand of the Iroquois. And before that, we uh, explored the history of Acadia up until the 1660s. But now let's return to the St. Lawrence. Let's return to Quebec. If you remember the last time we were here, Champlain died. Christmas Day, 1635. We talked about his legacy quite a bit and the influence he has even in today's world. But there was one final insult that Champlain was spared uh, by dying before 1636. And that's way back in France, Cardinal Richelieu, the real power behind the throne of France at the time, had already replaced Champlain. And his replacement was already on the way to the St. Lawrence. An insult on top of insult, this replacement would be given the title of governor, a title Champlain never quite achieved. He was always a lieutenant or there was always something before the term governor to weaken its impact. In early 1636, Charles de Montmagny, a knight of Malta, arrives as the new governor, with orders, of course, to relieve Champlain of his command. As you can imagine, uh, this point would be unnecessary. But thank God somebody came to take the leadership over of the colony after the death of Champlain. And Montmagny was a battle-hardened soldier. And as a Knight of Malta, he had deep connections to the Catholic Church and Cardinal Richelieu. He was the perfect guy for the job at the time. The historian Thomas Constain says of Mount Magny, Urbane and pleasant, gentlemen of high courage and Christian ideals, and an instinct for organization. These are the qualities that the French needed at this moment in New France. He arrived with about 45 others, soldiers and settlers. And before... Uh, taking on any sort of business, he immediately went to church service. He wasn't really a pawn of the church, but he certainly was an ally. And this was all part of Cardinal Richelieu's plan for the Catholic Church to dominate the political atmosphere of New France. Many think he only did this in order for him as a cardinal to have firm control over New France. It wasn't a uh, loyalty to the church. It was his need to control French policy. And here's a good quote from Francis Parkman on Richelieu. In France, Richelieu crushed Protestantism as a curb to the House of Bourbon. In Germany, he nursed and strengthened it as a curb to the House of Austria. In other words, we were all pawns in his game. The various orders of the Catholic Church could now have free reign to open up schools and influence the natives however they wished. While Champlain was still alive in 1635, the Jesuits founded a small college in Quebec. By 1637, it was called the Sillery and it was a seminary for the Huron and other Algonquian people, teaching them the French language and converting them to Catholicism. By 1639, the Ursuline nuns had established a school for girls in Quebec. This would include both French and native students, where they would learn religion, reading, spinning, and weaving. Now in your modern mind, you might say, oh, they taught them spinning and weaving. How sexist. Well, that was a way to make money back then, and so it was a handy skill to have. Why not learn it? During the same period of time, some of the Innu bands or seeking out the Jesuits and other clergy in order to gain help to create agricultural settlements. If you remember up to this point, there are hunters and gatherers living in the far north where it's very hard to farm. Now, previously, Champlain has asked the Innu to settle down and start farming along the St. Lawrence, and they, were, uh, they told him they were afraid of the Iroquois, who were nearby to the south and would raid them constantly, incessantly. But it had been some time since the Iroquois were lurking around the St. Lawrence, and the Indian were now comfortable with the idea of taking up farming. If you'll remember, just a couple decades ago, the Innu faced seasonal starvation 
There were times where they resorted to cannibalism. Uh, one, de- one depiction early on, 1608, 1609, Champlain describes them eating a frozen dog that they found on the ground. The Innu lifestyle was, was hard. <laughs> These were a tough people. And scholars have noted that we're reaching the maximum of the Little Ice Age. And so whatever lifestyle the Innu held in that territory several hundred years ago, it was becoming even harder than that by this point. The Innu were finally willing to submit to a sedentary lifestyle. Moving beyond the Huron, which we learned about in our last episode, way far to the west. While Champlain was still alive, he sent out a young man named Jean Nicolet, who was loyal to him even when the English took over the colony. At this point, Jean was probably the first Frenchman or European at all to make it this far inland into North America among the Great Lakes. He was already a trader and interpreter for the Huron, but he ran into the Winnebago people who were traditional enemies of the Huron on their western frontier. He brokered a peace between the two groups, which caused a whole new set of networks to feed furs into Huron territory, which eventually, of course, would make it a new France. Never mind that Champlain, when he first sent Jean out to the west, gave him two very decorative handguns and a colorful silk robe because Champlain intended for him to run into the Emperor of China. I personally find it very hard to believe that Champlain still believed there was an overland route to China through what we now know as North America at this late date. Just to remind you, Champlain knew decades ago uh, when he was trolling up and down the coast of what would now be New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, and Maine, he was tasked with looking for the mystical land of Norumbega, and he knew pretty much off the bat that it didn't exist. So here we are 30 or so years later, and we're supposed to believe that Champlain still believes China is somewhere beyond the Great Lakes. I understand they didn't know much about longitude. They couldn't really figure out a way to measure it quite yet. But you would think after 30 years in the St. Lawrence, Champlain knew there was no China anywhere near them. I personally think every time Champlain mentions China uh, towards the end of his life, he's just trying to drum up more support in France for his endeavors in the St. Lawrence. But I digress. And so... Champlain's gone, Mount Magny is in charge, things are going very well because of everything Champlain set up and everything that Mount Magny continued to do, all the trading coming through Huronia, which was doing great, new opportunities uh, among the Winnebago people. This was a time of profit for the company that ran all of New France. Ah, but how long would that last? Francis Parkman writes, It was 32 years since Champlain had first attacked the Iroquois. They had nursed their wrath for more than a generation, and at length, their hour was come. Throughout the year 1641, the Iroquois began raiding French settlements, intercepting trade caravans, and attacking the French allies who were natives. Governor Malmagny was quick to act, and in June of the same year, he arranges a parley. But negotiations quickly fell apart, and everything turned into a skirmish, the French actually winning and chasing off the Iroquois. Mind you, at this time, there are less than 300 French people in the entire St. Lawrence. Men and women and children, every, everyone combined. The Iroquois greatly outnumber the French. And so this was a good victory for the French. And the Iroquois begin to refer to Governor Mount Magny by the literal translation of his name. They call him Anantio. I believe I'm pronouncing that right. Meaning Big Mountain or Great Mountain. And now from this point forward, every governor of New France will be called Anantio. This would wound the Iroquois, but they'd be back very soon. And then further to the west, the neutral nation, who are an Iroquois people uh, stuck between the Haudenosaunee and the Huron Confederacy. The neutrals spend the entire decade of the 1640s attacking the Algonquian allies 
of the French. And so trade is starting to fall precipitously. The neutrals only really relenting in their attacks once the Haudenosaunee decide they want to attack the neutrals. The drop in trade was so bad that by the end of 1641, the company of 100 associates that controlled New France were actually at a loss and had eaten away any profit they made over the last three years before this point in time. But Mount Magny and Richelieu, of course, had very deep pockets. And in 1641, the company of 100 associates is infused with more investment money, where they had previously been almost defunct since the Kirk or the Kirk brothers intercepted their ships that contain basically their entire initial investment over a decade before. In addition to the new funding, Cardinal Richelieu actually sends over 40 soldiers to help defend New France, 40 not being very many. Despite all of this, the Iroquois attacks really were quickly eroding everything. Things were definitely falling apart for both the French and the natives. This made converting the natives to Catholicism very hard because the Algonquian people and the Huron people, they could see what the Iroquois were doing, and they couldn't reconcile it with what they were being told about Jesus. Here's a quote straight from the Jesuit relations of 1642. A possible native convert, uh, speaking about his objections to the entire scheme. You tell us that God is full of goodness, and then, when we give ourselves up to him, he massacres us. The Iroquois, our mortal enemies, do not believe in God. They do not love the prayers. They are more wicked than the demons, and yet they prosper. And since we have forsaken the usages of our ancestors, they kill us, they massacre us, they burn us, they exterminate us, root and branch. And the Jesuit missionaries, they had a hard time combating this line of argument. And as much as they were, as I've mentioned before, gluttons for punishment and wanted to be Christ-like and take on the tortures of the world to prove their holiness, uh, they got worn down too. So here's a quote from a missionary from the same exact Jesuit relations. The Iroquois have, as usual, acted like fiends. They have been in the field, winter, spring, and summer. They have massacred many Hurons, many Algonquians. They have captured Frenchmen and have killed some of them. They hold one of our fathers as a prisoner. Some of their own people have been put to death. I shall speak of all this in detail further on. I have now but four words to say. If we do not have peace with these barbarians, or if we do not destroy them, the country will never be in a state of safety. The door will always be closed to Jesus Christ in the nations which dwell higher up. And the roads will always be infested by these imps. Remember, at this time, there are far more Iroquois than there are Frenchmen. And the Iroquois have perhaps 300 to 400 guns among them. And so the Iroquois possessed more guns than there were Frenchmen in New France. And they were using these guns they got from the Dutch to basically depopulate the Algonquian tribes all around them, who New France were allies of and tried to protect. This is a complete flip of all the stereotypes when you think of settler and native interactions during the colonial period. The previously mentioned Jean Nicolet, he tries to create a peace. He finds out that a Huron war band had taken some Iroquois captive, but in his chase to catch them before they tortured the Iroquois to death, he drowned in a river. Mount Magny, quick to act, of course, once again, decides to build a fort at the mouth of the Richelieu River. This is the point at which the Iroquois, and specifically the Mohawk, uh, enter the St. Lawrence. They come up through the lowlands rather than trekking through the Adirondacks, ultimately going through the Champlain Valley. 
This corridor will be very important in military endeavors for a century to come. Not a creative man, he names the fort Fort Richelieu on the Richelieu River, now in and about Sorrel, Quebec. He shows up with about a hundred men to build the fort, only to see heads on pikes. These would be the members of Isaac Jogues' party, a Catholic priest who had disappeared among the Iroquois, although Jogues' head was missing. The Iroquois had meant this as a warning and to mark the end of their territory at the top of the Richelieu River. Now, Magny was not intimidated and started building the fort anyway, but this put the Frenchmen on high alarm. And so while they were building the fort with their tools, their weapons were not far away from them. And so one day, when 200 Iroquois came swarming down on the construction site, the 100 Frenchmen were very quickly able to grab their guns, defend the fort, and fight off the Iroquois. Now, perhaps if they hadn't left those heads on the pikes, the Frenchmen wouldn't have been on such high alert. But now this established that the, the bottom of New France was at the Richelieu River, and the Iroquois realm contracted just a little bit. And in this very same year, 1642, a group of Catholic zealots arrived in the colony uh, to eventually found the settlement of Montreal. The organizers of this endeavor had all received visions sending them on this quest. And so Mount Magny, as much as he was a religious man, was very practical. He was a military man, and he understood that the temporal world has some very real ramifications on the lives of living Christians. However, these people, in Mount Magny's point of view, had their heads in the clouds. Back in France, a man by the name of Jean-Jacques Ollier and another man by the name of Jerome Le Royer de la Davassière both independently received a vision instructing them to go to the island of Montreal, which had already been named by Champlain and Cartier before him, and found a religious order, a new community. When the two men met one another and described having a similar or identical vision of a future community in faraway New France, they took that as another sign from God. And then a woman named Jeanne Mance had the same vision. She herself traveled to Paris under the ruse of visiting family. And before she knew it, she was plugged into this new effort to settle Montreal, and she was on a boat headed for North America. This entire effort was being undertaken by a company that some have described as a secret society within the Catholic Church, known as the Company of the Blessed Sacrament. To acquire the island, the company employed Father Lallemont to convince the guy who had the grant to all of Montreal to give it over to the order. Now, although the name Montreal was already in place, there was nothing but a trading post there and a couple acres that had been cleared by Champlain and his men many years before. Within this secret society, they developed a sub-company that would govern over Montreal. It was called the Company of Montreal, or sometimes the Society of Notre Dame at Montreal. And from the 100 associates that ruled New France, they received a certain amount of autonomy. In other words, Governor Montmagny wouldn't have much say over this little island colony. Of course, the governor would be jealous of this exception, but Montreal would not be engaging in the fur trade. That was specific in their mission, and so that made this a little better, a little more tolerable for the authorities of New France. The settlers arrived in Quebec with 40 men and 4 women, including Jeanne Mance, the lady I mentioned before. It was far too late in the year to actually settle Montreal, and so they would have to overwinter in Quebec. And so the future governor of Montreal, Governor Maisonneuve, was able to have these long discussions with Governor Mount Magny. Mount Magny and the other residents of Quebec warned the Montreal settlers, you don't want to go to the Isle of Montreal. That's far too close to the Iroquois realm. You're going to get slaughtered. But Maisonneuve spoke for his entire community when he said, 
that he would settle Montreal, even if all the trees turned to Iroquois. And as the time wore on, there began to be a split between Governor Maisonneuve and Mount Magny. In January of 1642, Maisonneuve takes all of his colonists, and they go two to three miles outside of Montreal to hold a huge celebration just among themselves. And just before dawn, they started firing off their cannons, of course, rousing everybody in Quebec, worried about what, what was going on. Mount Magny had the guys firing the cannons, of course, arrested, and then questioned Governor Maisonneuve as to his intentions, or why have this uh, display so early in the morning. It would seem both men came away with the understanding that this whole debacle was a display of their independence from the authorities at Quebec. Fast forward to May of 1642. Mount Magny accompanies the Montreal settlers to their island, oh, so very close to the Iroquois world. Probably very happy to see them go, but very concerned for their safety. Landing on the island, they immediately had a mass, and the parable of the mustard seed was read. And after this, Father Vinmont said to the colonists, You are a grain of mustard seed that shall rise and grow till its branches overshadow the earth. You are few, but your work is the work of God. His smile is upon you, and your children shall fill the land. And the island called Montreal now hosted the small colony of Villa Marie, which of course would become the future city of Montreal. And now you can see why Mount Magny was so urgently willing to build a fort at the very edge of the Iroquois world on the Richelieu. But very quickly, the residents of Montreal found it was hard to entice natives to live on their island. The natives sharing Mount Magny's view that they were far too close to the Iroquois. But nevertheless, Maisonneuve would be governor over Montreal for the next 20 years. And very slowly, the commercial and secular interests would find their way to the island. And this vision of a Catholic version of a city on a hill would give way to the realities of setting up a colony in North America which included constant attacks from the Iroquois, especially in these early years. Now not having to travel as far as Quebec City, they could go to Montreal. Over the next couple of years, Frenchmen found on the very outskirts of Montreal would be captured by Iroquois. Many of them drowned, tortured, or burned alive. Here's one such incident uh, that took place in 1643 that I found in the Jesuit relations. A band of 40 Iroquois made an attack on Montreal. They saw 60 Huron coming downriver in 13 canoes filled with pelts. The Iroquois fell upon them, and they took 23 prisoner, as well as attacking five Frenchmen who were working at some carpentry 200 paces from the settlement. Three of these they beat to death and took the other two captive. The Iroquois passed the night rejoicing over their prizes, and morning have come. They rushed upon the Huron prisoners and beat 13 of them to death. They kept 10 of them alive, along with two Frenchmen, and went away with rich spoils. Our French of the settlement watched without being able to do anything. Even their allies could sometimes turn coat. In June of 1643, 60 Huron reach the Lachine Rapids, and they find a massive Iroquois war party. The Huron decided to be friendly towards the Iroquois and detailed to them the entire layout of the French settlement of Montreal. A portion of that Iroquois force then used that information to sneak into Montreal at night. They kill three Frenchmen, and they capture three others. And to reward the Huron for their information, that very same night they fell upon the Huron, killed most of them, some of them escaped to Montreal. And wouldn't you know it, the people of Montreal let the traitors in. You have to remember that the people of Montreal at this time, they aren't thinking like we would today. To them, having this little mustard seed settlement in the middle of what they would consider Satan's land was a huge victory. And any sort of native who seemed friendly to them, 
they would allow to be part of their settlement, or at least be there for a while. Everything was an, everyone was an opportunity. Every soul was a soul that could be saved. This would be the very same year, however, that the Mohawk began using rotating bands of raiders. So instead of war being seasonal, as it often was traditionally, now you had an unrelenting schedule of war bands entering into the St. Lawrence, pillaging the French, and taking from the natives. Obviously, conditions had turned really bad in New France. The company wasn't making very much money. And by 1643, Cardinal Richelieu had died, meaning disorder not only for New France, but Old France. In his place, Cardinal Marazin filled the role. And as little attention as Richelieu gave to New France, Marazin gave even less. The company controlling New France, the company of 100 associates set up by Richelieu, they accused the Jesuits of participating in the fur trade and siphoning off funds that would otherwise be returned to the company's investors. Or even worse, that the Jesuits were conspiring with portions of the company to carry their own cargo to France to be sold. Either way, the company and its foundation had promised to settle 4,000 people by 1643. They came nowhere near that number. And so at this point, they start selling seigneurial estates more than they ever had before. These would be rich landowners, would essentially be lords in New France, required to bring over some settlers with them to clear and farm the land. From this point on, control of the colony on the ground level and of the trading became increasingly in the hands of the people who were actually in New France. These companies become more and more distant and less aware of what was actually happening in the colony. New France was weathering all this turnover and turmoil caused by the Iroquois in events in France. But if you remember from our last episode, we're entering the mid-1640s. Now the Iroquois are putting a lot of pressure on tribes to the west of them, particularly the Huron, who are the linchpin in the trading network that the the French are depending on to get furs. And the Jesuits record this very same year that they still believe China to be just west of Huronia, despite the expeditions of Jean Nicolet. But the incessant Iroquois were about to tear through all those western tribes and dash many of the hopes of the Frenchmen in the process. This very same year, Father Diedmer says, It is almost impossible to make peace or war with these barbarians, because war is their life, their amusement, and their source of profit. All in one. Indeed, why were the Iroquois uh, so vicious during this time period? Well, for one thing, they were the victims of plagues that the Huron experienced, every other native group experienced, that would kill between 50 and 90% of their population over the course of the 17th century. And so they engaged in what was either called the Beaver Wars, or more recently the Mourning Wars, where, yes, they wanted to control the beaver trade so that they could get these European goods because they had lost their native skills to manufacture things themselves at this point. But they also wanted to replenish their population. And the people they most wanted to replenish their population with were these other Iroquoian-speaking groups, who were not in the Iroquois Confederation, but could very easily assimilate. This would include the Huron, and the Cat People, and the Tobacco Nation, and the Neutrals, and many other groups we barely ever hear about. This only intensified traditional rivalries among native groups and alliances. Now, if you remember, Champlain plugged the French into one side, and that was the side of the Innu and the Huron, which the native peoples established long before Champlain were enemies of the Iroquois Confederacy. Here we are several decades later, and the rivalry is still going on. The blood feuds are still happening. The only difference is now the Iroquois are being supplied with state-of-the-art guns by the Dutch. But events to the south of the Iroquois would provide a moment of relief to the people of New France. See, the Dutch in New Netherland were involved in what was called Kieft's War, because Governor Kieft 
who basically single-handedly caused this war. You can listen to that episode in our first season. Well, anyway, the Dutch Iroquois allies would have to deal with various Algonquian groups among the Lene Lenape and others down south of their territory. So they had to split their attention. And so in this time period, there was a slight opportunity for a peace with New France. It's said that the Mohawk didn't actually want to wipe out the French population. They wanted to wipe out all of their trading allies so that the French would be forced to trade with the Mohawk. In spring of 1645, one Frenchman and six natives traveled down to Lake Champlain to attack the various hunting groups of Iroquois. Few in number, they managed to bring some captives back to the Sillery near Quebec. The natives settled there, scared the Iroquois with promises of ritualized torture. Governor Mount Magny heard about these captives there, and he appeared at the native settlement and saved the Iroquois captives from their promised tortures. Now, was this all a setup? Who knows? But either way, Mount Magny looks like a hero in the eyes of these Iroquois. He then lavishes gifts on one of the members of the Iroquois captives and sets him free, asking him to go back to his country and help arrange a peace with the French. And if he did so, the rest of the captives would be set free. Sometime later, in July of 1645, Mount Magny received word that there was a delegation of Iroquois at Trois-Rivières, to which Mount Magny quickly rushed there with some native allies intending to make a comprehensive peace between the various peoples in the Iroquois. It just so happened as a peace offering, the Iroquois presented French captives that they had had for a couple years at this point. As a sign of reciprocity, the leader of the Haudenosaunee delegation was the great Coyote Satin, and he said, Anuntio, give ear. I am the mouth of my nation. When you listen to me, you listen to all the Iroquois. There is no evil in my heart. My song is a song of peace. We have many war songs in my country, but we have thrown them all away. After this speech, his people began to sing and distribute wampum belts. Then the Iroquois began to dance, and then the Algonquian people joined them. And then finally the French began dancing also. It was a beautiful evening, and Mount Magny confirmed the peace and he urged the Iroquois not to attack their native allies until these wampum belts and agreements could be distributed to each and every tribe. This short reprieve from the Iroquois attacks caused a flood of furs to inundate New France. It became a very profitable season. At the same time, the Jesuits began converting in mass the Abenaki and the Inuit Tadoussac, who have long been allies of New France. They also start increasingly coming over to the Catholic faith. And luckily for the people living in New France, the Company of 100 Associates officially handed over the fur trading monopoly to what in English they called the Company of Habitants, or the Community of Habitants. With this, they offloaded a lot of their responsibilities from France to the colonists themselves in New France. So now the habitants, the people living in New France, would be responsible for paying colonial officials, maintaining the forts, paying the clergy, and were tasked with bringing over at least 20 colonists a year. Specifically, the company would work as a colony as a whole, uh, splitting people up into three classes, the principal, the middle, and the lower. Each one of these classes would be represented by the heads of the families, of course, the men. Fur trading profits were then divided into three equal amounts and then given to each class to again then be divided equally. I know that's confusing. After paying for the colonial governors, the military, the religious services, the entire community company would be operated by a body of directors who are often accused of stealing. And so with everything in bloom, everything reorganized, the fates are looking up for New France. In the year 1646, the French were to send a peace delegation 
into Mohawk country to finalize their peace agreement. One of the leaders of this group would be Father Isaac Jogues, who had formerly been in Mohawk country. Captured at the time of the building of Fort Richelieu, or just before it, the Mohawk cut off many of his extremities, including his nose and his ears, many of his fingers. They burnt him with embers until his skin was just a, a one piece of scar tissue. They cut off his lips and tortured his converts right in front of him. They then kept him in a condition of servitude akin to slavery for quite some time until he was actually finally rescued by the Dutch in New Netherland. And they were shocked by his condition. And even though they were mostly Protestant, they saw this injured, mutilated Catholic priest as a symbol of the triumph of Christianity over these animist people. And in fact, when he finally made it back to France, they considered him a living martyr. Now, being called such a thing, you might think, is a compliment. But being a priest at this time and knowing the life of Christ, the suffering and the dying is part of proving your Christ-like status. So being a living martyr is kind of like winning a silver medal. And then on the other end of things, you're so mutilated from this experience that people already consider you akin to the status of a dead person. Your active public life is basically over because you're hideous to look at. And so Jogues found his way back to New France and had every intention of going back to preach to the Mohawk and being martyred. And so when he left for New France with this peace delegation, he's quoted as saying, I go, but I shall not return. He did not share the optimism of his fellow Frenchmen. The group traveled to the easternmost Mohawk village, and Jogues made a grand speech, which was well-received by the Iroquois, but they did not like the Algonquian allies he had brought with them, and the Mohawk swiftly asked him and his, his traveling partners to leave the country. Before leaving, Isaac Jogues asked to tend to his flock in that Mohawk community. The few Catholics among them, many of them prisoners or recent adoptees of the Mohawk, and he was allowed to do so. And he left a black box full of supplies that he would need upon his return. Rather than bringing it all the way back to New France, he asked if he could leave the black box there. And they allowed him. By June, he arrived back at Fort Richelieu. While he was gone from the Mohawk village, a plague broke out, devastating. And a Huron adoptee living among the Mohawk, former captive, blamed the black box. He mentioned how back in Huronia, similar things happened when the Jesuits came around. Fast forward to when Isaac Jokes shows back up in this Mohawk village, and a Mohawk brave splits his head in half with an axe. To the Iroquois, this moment would be the end of the peace. Immediately after this, the Iroquois rallied their war parties and decided to attack New France before word could get back to them. The first thing they did was destroy Fort Richelieu, retaking command of the Richelieu River and establishing that the Iroquois realm extended right into the St. Lawrence. At Trois-Rivières, the Mohawks stole all the stores while the French were attending service. They slaughtered the nearby Christian Algonquins who were out hunting. They also found their women and children. One Algonquin woman who escaped reported to the French that the Iroquois had crucified a small child, perhaps to mock the spirits that had caused their plague. There would be no rest, no peace for the French. Please tune in to our last episode of the season to hear the rest of the story. <laughs>